Yeah, so we we received questions from uh, Laurel H- Hightower, among a few others, and she asked a really interesting one I think might be fun to answer um, for both of us. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, I think I've heard you both mention you watched a lot of horror from a young age, and I know I did too. Um, with your own kids, did you or will you set limits or apply the same rules? Uh, yeah, um, I guess I'll start with that. Um, I have a three-year-old daughter and, you know, it's kind of hard to say right now exactly how I will handle it. Um, she's aware, ironically enough, of a lot of horror things. She's definitely my daughter. Um, she, she hasn't been exposed to, you know, obviously super hardcore type horror stuff like Freddy and Jason because she's only three, but she, like, has seen, like, the Charlie Brown specials and all of that type of stuff, and one of my favorite stories and man, people are going to laugh at me for recreating this, but I don't know how she comes up with some of this stuff, but she likes witches, and she told us that she wanted to be a witch for Halloween, and I don't know what prompted me to ask her, but she was, I said, Nina, what does a witch say? And she goes, a witch says, hey, 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 and I just bust out laughing, but I think that I'll kind of have a multifaceted approach with, you know, exposing her to horror. I kind of started her off kind of how I did. I obviously watched, you know, horror movies that I probably shouldn't have at a too young age. But my real start was, you know, Goosebumps books and scary stories to tell in the dark. And then as far as like TV shows, I watched um, Are You Afraid of the Dark a lot. And I watched the Goosebumps TV show, and um, there was one other. Oh, Ernest Scared Stupid. For some reason, I was obsessed with that movie. The intro, I think, is great. It has a lot of, you know, vintage horror films in the opening, and he kind of does his shtick throughout it. But when you think about it, it's a kid's film, but it's fairly dark. Um Maybe we could put this in the show notes. I don't know if it's even still live, but they asked me a couple years back to write about, you know, childhood scary movies and whatnot on uh, SF Signal, which was a pretty big website at the time. And I I don't know why they picked me because that was in the early days, I think, of the horror bookshelf. Or maybe I'm just being hard on myself. But I was like, I'm a nobody. And I was, you know, alongside all these pretty big name writers, authors about, you know, childhood films that scared us. And I wrote about Ernest Scared Stupid. And uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but later I figured out that um, in that movie, the the makeup or props or practical effects, basically, they use for the trolls. Some of them were used in the killer. They were reused. They reused um, the practical effects from killer clowns from outer space. And if you haven't seen it, and even if you think 
you know, Ernest is lame. I highly recommend checking it out. It's a kid slash family film, but as far as I'm concerned, it's the perfect movie for the Halloween season. And uh, Shane, I guess I'll uh, let you comment on that or if you want to just go over your well, thoughts on it. I find it endlessly fascinating that you're scared of Ernest Scared Stupid. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> okay, okay, that, that's more reasonable, because I'm sitting there going, really? I don't know if I was scared of that movie. I mean, it wasn't around then, but I don't know if I would have been scared of it when I was 11. But. <laughs> I, I, you know what? It's funny you mention that. I, I can't remember. I think I was maybe five when I saw it. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Because <laughs> like, it's a kid's th- movie, but, you know. Yeah, because I like my dad had no filters. He kind of, you know, when I um, hit probably about the age of 10, he he let me um, create set set my own limits, kind of, you know, it's like if if I believed that I wasn't scared of it or that it wouldn't fuck with me, then he was all right with me watching it, you know? Yeah, Yeah, that's kind of the same thing for me. Yeah, so by the time I was 11 years old, I'd seen some hardcore shit, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, and most of it with my dad. Uh, and my mother, on the my mother didn't really pay any attention whatsoever, so it didn't matter on that, and I could do whatever the hell I wanted to. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, early on she did, but later, not so much. Um, my own approach with my kids, who are all grown now, and off making their own mistakes um, is kind of a, you know, kind of basically the same thing is that I kind of at once they reached the age of 10, I kind of went, you know, if they think that they can handle it, then I will let them test that because if they can't handle it, they'll know that and they'll never do it again, you know, or they won't do it until they're old enough and they can handle it. And that kind of that did all right for me. It didn't do them any harm, um, and one of them is a horror fan, and one of them is definitely not a horror fan. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't really set too many limits. I mean, there were limits as far as you know, things like nudity and pornography. I was a little bit, you know, I want you yeah. to be a certain age before you see a man's parts, but you know. Yeah, I mean, at least on the TV screen, you're going to see him in real life if you live with a family. But, you know, um, and if that came out sounding all wrong, (laughs) I I did not mean my parts. (laughs) (laughs) It did kind of take a weird turn there, but, you know, it's funny, like you said. Um, like when I first saw that movie, when you were like, oh, are you still scared of that? Like I was, I was five and like, you know, that was really my first experience seeing like the magic of practical effects and like these creatures and like basically what these creatures did were they stole kids from their family and turned them into like these wood dolls and stuck them in a tree. I was like, I used to have nightmares about and I still remember his name, so that tells you, A, how many times I saw this movie growing up, and B, how bad it scared me when I was that age. Um, Trantor, 
when Trantor was going around stealing all those kids, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, when I wrote that piece for SF Signal, I was, you know, I hadn't seen it in decades because um, I first saw it, I think, when I was about five. And that's when it really got to me. And I think the last time I had seen it, I was maybe like right before I turned 10. Um, but then when they asked me to pick a childhood film and I thought about it and I picked that one, when I went back and looked at it, you know, yeah, it might not, it doesn't, it didn't appear as scary looking back on it. But if you were a really young kid at that time, you know, it's a kid's movie, but you've got trolls with fucking like nails through their faces, almost like Pinhead from Hellraiser and, you know, yeah. all this other stuff. And I'm like, how the hell is this marketed towards kids? <laughs> yeah, I can see how as, at, an, at a particular age you'd go, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I used to have fucking nightmares about Trantor. <laughs> I had nightmares. The one the for me and it's odd. It wasn't a it wasn't a horror movie. When I was a kid, I went to the theater with my dad and saw a movie, um, a western called uh, The Missouri Breaks, and it was pretty hardcore violent western about a this crazy guy played by Mel Brooks who uh, um, played uh, basically a serial killer. And uh, for some reason, that movie just... I mean, he would like just come out of nowhere like you're sitting in the fucking outhouse and suddenly you're fucking raw hamburger on the ground because he just blasted you with a shotgun right while you were taking a shit, you know? And I mean... Th- the whole movie, for some reason, my dad loved that movie, and I went home thinking I will never go see another movie with my dad again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what's funny is how you how you said that. Like, my dad was kind of the same way. Um, the films that he, he really showed me were um, Steven Seagal action films, which, geez... All of them were so ridiculous. And, like, I still remember this one scene where I forget which one of the many great Seagal action flicks it came from. But he's, like, there's a senator, Senator Trent, and he, like, that's, like, his adversary for the film. And he's watching, he's, like, a politician, and he's watching his campaign video and then at the end, he's like, oh, I'll take you to the bank, Senator Trent, the blood <laughs> bank. <laughs> and, like, I just laugh. But it's funny that you say that because he was, like, the more I think about it, he was never, like, as fanatical about horror as we are. But I think that's where I got my love for it from. Like, he would oh. let me rent those movies. and yeah. That's also how I heard about the uh, great mockumentary Faces of Death. Yeah, and I, I, I know I know for a fact, my dad was the same way. He's very casual about horror. But I know for a fact he's where I got my love of horror from because that was where I experienced my first fiction novel, um, which was a Stephen King novel, and my first 
uh, horror film I watched with my dad. So, yeah, that is definitely where that was born of. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's interesting that we both have similar experiences like that. And to a degree, you know, I was really into writing at a young age. And then for whatever reason, I had kind of drifted away from it. And I've recently found found my way back into writing these stories. But I think my my penchant for telling stories, you know, comes from my dad as well. Um, I think I mentioned this on a recent episode um, about the time my dad, when I was younger, we rented a boat on Green Lane Reservoir, which was a reservoir near where we lived at the time. And he rode us out into the middle of this reservoir so far out that, you know, it was just water and then like woods surrounding all around. You couldn't really see any signs of civilization or other boaters. It was just us in this tiny little rowboat. (laughs) And I can't remember the story exactly and for our longtime listeners i apologize for making you sit through this again (laughs) but he started telling me a story sort of about like you know oh there's this crazed killer that escaped from prison and i heard he's lurking in the area and i was i i i think it was right before you know my teen years that he's sitting there and he's spinning this yarn about this crazy guy who's escaped from prison and on and on and he he built this sense of dread to the point where you know he's a big guy i in my young age i stood up in the canoe and i gripped him up by the front of his shirt and i was like don't say that (laughs) and you know I think that's kind of he never you know he didn't have any experience writing or anything like that as far as I'm aware but as far as a storyteller goes you know I think that's he was the one that kind of imparted that on me because that man could spin a very good story (laughs) I got interested in storytelling from my uncle Bill um he uh, was an uncle on my mother's side. I used to go camping with him and his brother Bob, my uncle Bob, um, and my cousin John all the time because John and I were um, pretty much best friends growing up. Um, and he would sit at the campfire and weave these yarns. I mean, and it's stuff that he said was true, and some of it may have been, may not have been, I don't know. But he would mesmerize you for hours on end. And sometimes they were scary. Sometimes they were just stories of, of his life, you know, but, uh, extremely, extremely interesting guy, extremely, extremely naturally talented storyteller who didn't even realize that's what he was doing. Really. You know, he was just bullshitting. Um, but, that really made me interested in story. And it was what drove me as a little, little kid to read, you know, and then later in life drove, drove me to look for better and better and better stories. And eventually to start writing stuff myself. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that you say that, um, cause it sounds like your uncle is kind of similar to my dad in that I don't, 
think that they knew that that's what they were doing or, you know, they might not have had experience as a writer, but they were able, they just had this innate ability to tap into that. And to a degree, you know, I, it doesn't really come across on these podcasts as much because, you know, the nerves or whatever of being live and people actually listening to what you say, but it's kind of funny in that, like, you know, I just got back into it, but I write stories, but I always feel like I have, and I wish I could somehow translate this into my own writing, but I feel like when I tell people stories, you know, when I used to go to the bar, you know, I always seem to have that same ability that my dad had to, you know, tell a good story use the inflection of my voice, you know, like do quote unquote impressions of people and make it feel alive. And that's one of the things now that I'm starting to knock the rust off of my writing that I hope I can bridge that gap and take that, you know, ability to tell a story orally and translate it onto the page, if that makes any sense. But yeah, I, like I was saying, I, you know, if it makes any sense, I hope I can take that innate storytelling ability that I'm able to do, you know, in person telling somebody a story and, you know, kind of translate that to the page, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I don't know. I don't know if I have that innate ability or not, especially a person to person. I can't stand there and tell somebody a story. Um, I used to some when I was younger, but now it's kind of, you know, for whatever reason, probably this whole social anxiety thing, that's something that I'm just not capable of doing. I can stand there in front of you and think a really good story, but you're not going to hear it, you know? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like if it's just you and me, someone I'm totally comfortable with, I could sit here and, and do it. But, you know, if it's a group of people that I really don't know or even one person I don't know, it's just not going to happen with me. You know, so I kind of envy that. But translating that to writing is, yeah, there, there's a there's a tricky little transition there because the way you write and the way you speak are very different things and they are of necessity very different things yeah Yeah. so but you know i don't know from what i've seen and what i've heard i think you can probably i think you can probably pull it off okay which yeah thanks i appreciate that and uh also i i have to use this chance to give a shout out to uh laurel Hightower, who submitted the question and was a guest on our podcast, she was kind enough to look at one of my stories, and she gave me some really great feedback on it that, you know, I think will make the story a lot better, but yeah, you know, I'm kind of with you as well, and it's kind of weird because I, I have the same thing with social anxiety, and, you know, sometimes that comes through probably even on the podcast, you know, from when I repeat words or use certain words too much, but it's funny when I used to, when I used to go to the bar, you know, on the weekends and hang out, I, I don't know how it would happen, but people seem to just kind of like gravitate towards me and 
tell me their story. And, you know, then I would tell their story or tell them my story, I should say. Or like, you know, even if we're just bullshitting and it's, you know, whatever. But it's kind of funny in that once I start it, like I get into it. Like, I, I do the whole theatrical thing. Like, I use some hand gestures. I, you know, impersonate certain people. And I don't know what it is because, like I said, I'm a very I, – I, I, I'm a lot better now. But I I used to be very shy. And for whatever reason, when I used to go to the bar, like, everybody had to sit next to me and, you know, tell me their story. And – you know, I kind of did the same thing. Like I would start talking to them and the next thing you know, I'm telling some story. And I just think it's kind of interesting in that with a lot of writers, you know, and some are great at both, but you know, you always see sometimes with certain things, like a lot of people crap on Stephen King and be like, well, he's a crummy writer, blah, 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 but he's a master storyteller. And I always thought that that kind of distinction was interesting. You know, like there are some people that are great technical writers, but their story might not be all that engaging. And then there's some people who may, might not have the literary talents of, you know, other writers, but they can tell one hell of a story. Yeah, and even, I mean, it can't really even be said honestly, if if a person were being honest about Stephen King, that he's a crummy writer. He, you're right, he's a master storyteller, but, I mean, he's also, um, re, when you read books like um, 1122, 63, or whatever it is, or Duma yeah. Keith, things like that, um, that's where you you learn that he's not just a master storyteller. He's also he's also more than managed the technical proficiency of the craft. Yeah, and the, you know that's a good point because I don't view it that way. I know a lot of other people do, and I wonder how much of that, you know. And I'm not I'm not one to say that you know. It's not like I think he's perfect and you know above criticism oh absolutely not you want to you want to criticize stephen king i'm your huckleberry (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) but i i wonder how much of how much people bag on his writing ability you know and everyone has their opinion and i'm not calling out specific books but there are some people that think overall he's a crummy writer and you know that's their opinion but I wonder how much of it is that syndrome of when someone reaches a certain level of popularity, you know, and is so much a part of public consciousness to where, you know, they maybe judge him a lot harsher than they would if he was, you know, Stephen King, mid-list author. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, I also think, Especially when you hear authors doing that to him, I think there's a, there's um, some professional jealousy going on there too, you know. And that that just is what it is, you know. I'm yeah. not gonna argue that point with anybody, but I sometimes see people hating on authors like King and Straub and Barker and guys like that, and 
it just feels like jealousy to me. Yeah, and I feel that's valid. And you know, if people if people don't like them, you know, that's their prerogative. Um, but like you said, I feel like part of it, part you know, that it may not be for them, but I feel like there's also a certain segment to where, you know, he's so popular, and they just feel like they can just bag on him, and other authors, you know, like him, just because of how popular he is yeah yeah and it's you know when i encounter people like that i pretty much just ignore them and move on <laughs> you know i had i did have one situation and i won't name the guy but um he said stephen king sucks i'm a better author than stephen king <laughs> And this guy had, I mean, at that point in time, had published maybe four stories in professional publications. And it's like, man, I and I just told him point blank, you're going to need a lot larger body of work before you tell me that shit. You're not better than Stephen King. You don't even, you're not even fucking a drop in the barrel compared to the guy yet. You know, and that just is what it is it was it was arrogant you know it was a um youthful hubris and it needed to be called out you know because just because i'm an asshole and i'm gonna call that <laughs> shit out <laughs> <laughs> yeah no not not that i'm agreeing with that part of it but yeah you know i always found that fascinating you know just the way certain authors are perceived and you know I'm not here to judge anybody's taste. If you hate Stephen King, that's great. Absolutely. Because um, there's, you know, there's stuff of his that I'm like, eh, do I really want to read this? But at the same time, like, you can't, you can't crap on his entire body of work when he's written, you know. And it, the other thing that always gets me is, like, people look down on horror and stuff, and... They're like, hey, horror sucks and horror writers, you know, they're not, you know, they shouldn't be held on the same pedestal as literary writers. But then when you think about it, some of the most popular, critically regarded films like the Shawshank Redemption, that was mm -hmm. a Stephen King's story. Right, right, exactly. Um, and it was actually um, on, you know, on as far as the way King writes, it was an, actually a pretty literary story, too. Yeah, and, that, and that's what I love about his work. And, you know, I'm one of the rare people, like, a lot of people, I love his older stuff, but a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I liked his older stuff, but any, anything post, you know, such and such novel is straight garbage. Like I, I'm going to say again in our interview with Sean, some of my favorite King books are some of his later books, and they don't even really have, you know, that they are horror, but they don't have that, you know, typical when you think of King horror vibe like Joylander, 11-22-63. Those are probably like some of my favorite King books. And they're later in his career that a lot of people crap on. Yeah, and I don't, uh, you know, I've been told by a lot of people that Joyland is 
one of the best crime novels they've read. You know, and I can't speak to it. I haven't read it, but I can speak to 112263, and I agree with you that it's among his better work, I think. Yeah, Joyland is phenomenal. You'll love it. Yeah, I've got it sitting here on my shelf with 10,000 other books that I mean to read someday after I die. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> um, so uh, should we take uh, take on another question, or what do you want to talk about now, Rich? <laughs> yeah, we, we can do one more. Um, I am. No, we don't want to talk to you right now, Angel. We'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry, I had a different email up. Um. Okay, there was few Laurel Shane when when can we hear some of your singing? That's it's a very simple answer. I have to get to a certain type of lit. And it's a combination of beer and weed that I'm not sure exactly what the measure is, but when I get there I'll sing to anybody. Hey, so there you go. Simple answer. <laughs> That that was a lot shorter of a question than I expected, but Laurel, <laughs> to answer it, to give it my perspective, if you want to hear Shane sing, and I'm going to kind of box us into a corner here, I don't know what day it falls on, but if it's at all possible, maybe I can talk Shane into a marathon New Year's Eve episode and get him really drunk on air. <laughs> <laughs> maybe um you know new year's eve i'll definitely be drunk but like i say it's a certain <laughs> combination there's you know <laughs> so um but since i asked me a question thank you for that question laurel um we'll do one for rich specifically and that is, and yeah this is a good question because you do talk about this a lot um, you travel a lot for your job, and you hit up a lot of different bookstores. Um, do you have a favorite amongst those? Yeah, um, ironically enough, I do. I do drive a lot for my job. I do field service work in the tech industry for a very large pharmacy company. Um, but I and I do visit some bookstores while I'm out that way, like on my lunch break or whatever. But um, so far, none of them have really compared to the local ones. Um, ironically enough, my favorite one is an indie bookstore in Syracuse, which, you know, sometimes I go there for work. But most of the times it's when I'm going to visit my mom called Books End. Um, they have a dedicated horror section, which, as many horror fans know, is fairly rare. And I found some of my greatest finds there. Um, You know, I read paperbacks. I read paperbacks from hell. And because of my age, you know, I wasn't around for like, you know, the big 80s horror boom. So when I read that, I was discovering all these authors that were new to me. And some of my biggest finds were from books. And that's where I finally found a physical copy of Kathy Koja's The Cipher, which, you know, I'd heard many great things about it. Um, Todd Kiesling had 
written a great article for us about the cipher and that's what made me want to seek it out and it became one of my favorite books but it's that's where i found that and um i just love going in there they have a lot of good stuff it changes often um there's actually one right down the street i'm pretty sure the name is books and melodies um they don't have a dedicated horror section and they don't really even have a lot of hard books, but it's one of those places as a book lover that you want to go to. Um, you know, there's just books everywhere, all different kinds of books. It's I kind of like books in because it's organized. I can just zoom right in there. Okay, this is my section, whether it be horror or crime books. But there's something about the sort of haphazard feel of books and uh, melodies and just browsing and being surrounded by those books. And it was actually featured in a couple movies. I'm pretty sure, I know the one was a John Cusack movie. Um, it was John Cusack and Emma Roberts called Adult World. And he was, I, I'm pretty sure he was a poet, a famous poet. And, uh, but he was kind of like reclusive and kind of ornery. And this girl, Emma Roberts, Emma Roberts's character was a huge fan and you know she tries to emulate him and I won't spoil the movie it's very good though you should check it out especially if you're a, a book fan which most people listening are um, but yeah it, they filmed it all around Syracuse and it actually was in the film it's a very very cool spot but those are my those are my two favorite uh, indie bookstores and I'll also give a shout out to Rick's Recycled Books in Rochester. They have a dedicated horror section as well. And I found tons of great stuff in there. But uh, Shane, I know this question was for me. Um, but I feel like you had, you've told me about some pretty cool spots as well. Yeah, we have. So, well, obviously, I live in the city of Portland, so um, the first place that's going to come out of my mouth is Powell's. Um, but Powell's has got for they are indie, but they've gotten pretty commercial too. Um, since the, I mean, they're a worldwide popular uh, bookstore, so they, uh, you know, they've become uh, quite uh, touristy. Um, but as far as favorites go, I have a single most favorite and it's easy to nail. It's a store down in Eugene, Oregon. It's a thrift store called St. Vinny's run by St. Vincent de Paul, obviously. Um, I don't know if they even call themselves that anymore, but I'm an old fucker and that's what I remember them <laughs> as. Um, but they have paperbacks that they sell on average for about a dollar eighty, So two bucks. Um, and they have this great big huge uh, mystery section, which is you know what it's called. Um, that most of the time when you go in there, there's more horror in it than there is mystery. And I've found some of the coolest shit in that store. And they don't care. They don't research it. They don't know what they have. They don't give a shit. You can walk in there and buy $2 paperbacks and 25 cent comics and it's just, it's just generic. They don't, you know, um, field it to see if they have anything worth any money or anything. And sometimes they do. 
Yeah, that, I hear you on places like that. And if I, well, I shouldn't say if, when I make it out that way, we should go to St. Vinny's. But um, I definitely, you know, I have my favorite bookstores and some of them like books. And that's where I found some of my favorite books. But, you know, like you said, some of these like thrift store type stores, you know, you can find sometimes it's hard. But sometimes you find great stuff there. Like there's a place around here. Um, I think they have them in other states, but I'm not sure how far their reach extends. Called Savers. It's basically kind of like a Goodwill. And they'll have like a horror sci-fi shelf. And, you know, it's close enough that I usually go there every Saturday. Some days I'll only find one book, but there is a stretch there where I'd go in there. And I don't know if someone dropped off their entire collection or what, but I walked in there and like, I think for two weeks in a row, I walked out of there with 25 books at a time. And like you said, they're anywhere, depending on the list price, like, you know, two ninety nine to one ninety nine. And like the one day I walked in there and there was just like, I, I couldn't believe it as a horror fan. Like it's almost like my jaw hit the floor. Cause I was used to only seeing like two of them at most. And I walked in there one day and I'm like, Oh my <laughs> God. And it had like skip inspector, like a brand new copy of, you know, the scream with the fold out poster inside. Um, I'm pretty sure I found um, a copy of like the unborn there in that same hall and you know there was so many like i was just like it was almost like euphoria and i'm sure other readers like you know you go into a spot and you see all these books and it's almost like it it's hard to describe it's almost like this joy where you can't believe you found all of these great books that you were searching for for so long or like too i found a copy of the cleanup there um, I'm trying to think of some other books. I got Fever Dream, Ghost Train, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I, like, I was just like, yes. And I'm just like grabbing them as fast as I can. Uh, I just went there the other day, you know, they had a first edition of John Ferris's The Fury. It was 99 cents. So naturally I grabbed it. <laughs> That's an interesting book. I'd be interested to see what you think about that book if you uh, read it. That's um, one. Uh, Stu- Steve Petty and I both read it in the last couple of years. Um, reread it. We had both read it when we were younger. Man, he's uh, the one of the guys that runs Horror DNA, uh, which you should be following if you don't. HorrorDNA.com. But uh, we had an interesting reaction compared action to it compared to what we had when we were much younger people yeah i'll definitely check it out for sure um and you know because i don't have any experience with it i um but yeah i'll definitely check it out and let you know um i have a couple of his books and you know that's the thing for a lot of people listening i buy these books faster than i can read them but you know I was talking to Daniel Brown and I was always like, I feel so behind, but he, he looks at it as, you know, 
it's just a vast amount of books that he has to look forward to and he'll never have to worry about finding his next great read but you know i you know i buy the all these books because i've heard great things and i plan on reading them but yeah i've accumulated a lot but i'll definitely read that one i have a couple others of his that i'd like to check out um like all heads turn when the hunt goes by i believe is the title and uh son of endless night is that yeah correct? that's yeah son of the endless night and all heads turn when the hunt goes by are his two very best novels in my opinion yeah so i i really look forward to reading those as well but yeah, yeah. it's you know that's the one thing about you know horror fiction is there's depending on when you got into it not even necessarily your age but if you're a new fan you know like me it was mainly my age you know i've i'm pretty i'm pretty well versed and up to date on a lot of contemporary horror authors but a lot of authors from the past you know, that maybe were before I was born that had such a mark on this genre. I'm still going back and discovering those. And, you know, it's a, it's a great experience and it's, you know, I'm just obsessed with trying to catch up and broaden my horizons, you know, beyond just what's out there now, but also authors that helped bring the genre to what it's there, to where it's at now. But there's some, something else that's really interesting to me, and I, is I like to I like to hear your reactions to certain books that were written back then, not because of your age, but because of the era in which you're reading them, and and that's yeah. why that's why I'm curious about the Fury because uh, in the era that I originally read it in, um, some of the stuff that was in it was a lot more acceptable, I think, than you'll find it now. So, and that's no spoiler or anything. That doesn't do anything to blow the book, but you might encounter things that uh, you'll go, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's funny you mention that because that's kind of one of the things that appeals to me about going back and reading these old books not necessarily because i want to be like well hey let's see what kind of stuff they you know could get away with or was acceptable but you know just to be able to kind of go back and see how this how hard evolved over time and that's why like uh brian Keane's column for cemetery dance where he he goes all the way back to like the origins of horror. Like, I love that just seeing like, okay, this is what it was like, you know, thousands of years ago and how it progressed to where it is now. I think that's part of the appeal for me too, about, you know, vintage horror fiction is not just expanding my knowledge of, you know, authors who brought it to where it is today, but also just kind of seeing how, Because horror basically is kind of like a prism on, you know, society at the time that it's written. So by going back and reading that, you can kind of see like what kind of fears were prevalent at that time. And it kind of reflects that time period. 
Yeah, it really does. It also kind of reflects the uh, yeah the levels of anxiety on a societal level in a way. Um, that's what you know the '70s and '80s really did, and what this new boom in horror is doing too. You know, as kind of a re- reaction to um, the conditions of our society right now. You know, the same yeah. as same as Flatterpunk was a reaction to. Um, the conformity of the, of the United States in the 70s and 80s. You know, it was born in the 80s of um, the conditions of society and urban decay around it, you know? Yeah, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not too, you know, up to date, obviously, on all those authors, just because. But it's kind of interesting... You know, it. I think art as a whole is a very good way to kind of gauge the way, you know, kind of gauge what was going on in a certain time period. Because like you said, Splatterpunk in the 80s as a reaction to what was going on that, to that society, in society, but kind of dovetail off that, you know, the 80s were also kind of when, american hardcore music kind of exploded and a lot of that was a reaction to society at that time period and that you know that always has interested me and i don't know how much like people think about it necessarily about you know a lot of people and this could open up a whole can of worms but you know the value of art basically you know, there's so many people out there who will be like, well, yeah, you just do this and we'll give you exposure or whatever. I don't think people, you know, not everybody, but, you know, certain people like who will be like, oh, we'll just give you exposure, give you whatever. I don't think they really think about how much value art has in terms of, you know, reflecting society or you know, and how li- like and, yeah, and how little value exposure has too. <laughs> yeah, which I know that'll open up a whole can of worms, yeah. and maybe we'll have people writing us on Twitter like, "Yeah, fuck writing for exposure," but you know, yeah, I I feel Spe- like, yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just gonna say, speaking of exposure, we should probably expose these people to uh, our guest here in a few minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have Sean Hamill again coming on uh, to talk about his book, A Cosmology of Monsters, and if and you a guys whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, he. It was a very great conversation, and seriously, Shane and I both can't say enough how much we love this novel. Um, it's a debut novel, but. It's incredibly, incredibly engaging. Um, I couldn't stop reading it. I kept coming back to it, thinking about it. And I think that if you haven't read it already, if you read it, I think you'll fall in love with it like we did. And Sean Hamill, he is definitely an author to keep an eye on going forward. Um, And it's a perfect it's a perfect read to pick up and squeeze in during the Halloween season. 
Um, yeah, it is. I uh, I love this book immensely. Um, if you haven't read it yet, definitely go get this book and read it. It's one of the best books I've read in ages. Um, and I've read some damn good books over the past 10 years. Uh, and with that, I will shut the hell up and we can bring Sean Hamill in for you guys. Where the fuck is the stop recording button, Rich? Stop, stop, stop.